the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNEW presents... New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you have a money question for the show, I'd love to hear them. I'm going to catch up on some of these emails from the... uh, holidays right now. Um, if you have an email question, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, it's all fair game. I'll do anything but the individual stock buy holder. So I'll just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. And this first one, the name is, by the way, let me know where you're from, where you're listening. Do you listen on radio, the podcast, and whether or not I can use your first name. I'm just going to call this first person Iggy because his name is one I've never seen before, so I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, and it might be just too obvious of who it is if friends are listening. So, hi, Chad. I listen and enjoy your program on 1220 AM. I'm 65 years old, and I'm still working. I have real estate, several winter homes. I'm planning on taking Social Security at 70. Do you have any feedback on taking Social Security at 70? I want to max out the 8% growth you spoke of in your program by waiting to age 70. I'll get approximately 1900 each month from Social Security for the last letter I received from Social Security. If I have 12000 a month income from five rental homes, which are all paid for and will be living a, uh, and will be living a comfortable and modest life, would it be possible to survive until my old age and be happy? Or will taxes on the income be a huge burden? I welcome any suggestions or ideas you may have to fine-tune my two- to six-year plan. Please let me know your thoughts based on my scenario. A lot of things going on here. First of all, congratulations on the accumulation of rental properties. That'd be tough to do at current price per income levels right now in the San Jose area. But but he, he did it. So excellent. Created a form, a flow of passive income. Now, one of the things I want to talk about, let's go into the social security piece first, because when you get your social security letters, whenever it's saying, if you take social security at 62 or your full retirement age or age 70, it's assuming you're continuing to work until that point of time. So keep that in mind. If you're going to stop work at 62, but not take social security until 70, it might not be the same number. So I hope you realize that. That's why financial planners, and you can go online and do social security analysis and figure out what you're actually going to receive. So let's say you're going to work until your full retirement age. And, you know, that's going to be 65 to 67, depending on when you were born. But if you wait from your full retirement age to age 70 to take your Social Security, if you can hold off on taking Social Security 
And as long as you live into your mid 80s or your spouse, if your spouse has lower social security uh, income and they live until the mid 80s, and even if you pass away early, they re- they're going to keep your check when you die because your check's the bigger one. If you're going to live until your mid 80s and beyond, it's like having an 8% plus rate of return on your money. And that's, you know, government slash bank style guarantees, right? So typically if you're healthier or your spouse is going to live a long period of time and you have enough income from other sources to survive while you're waiting until age 70, you should wait. Because if one of you is going to live beyond that, that, you know, mid eighties age and software gives us crossover points, then you're likely going to win. But look, if you're single and you're not healthy, take it when you can or at full retirement. There's people that I know that they still have to work until they're 70 just to get their retirement plan in place, but they end up taking Social Security at their full retirement age, um, even though they're, they're continuing to work just because their health issues are projecting them to live till maybe age 80. And they just want the money out and they want to enjoy it while they can. Now, there's always a little bit of a risk, right? The Social Security system is a risk a little bit. Um, the way it's projected is that Social Security is going to be paying out more income to retirees and people on disability than the Social Security system is taking in from our paychecks. That paycheck, when you look at your FICA taxes, that's your share, then your employer matches that. You're self-employed, you pay both halves. That goes into the Social Security system. And the way the law is written is that that system has to reduce benefits if that is going to occur. If, if it's taking in less money than it's paying out, benefits have to change. But you can imagine the political suicide that, that would cause. So what's going to happen is we're going to have to increase the amount that we pay FICA on. It typically, you know, if you're making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you're only paying FICA on, oh, what's the number in 2022? 140-something. So that number will increase. We'll be paying FICA on more of our income. We're going to see delayed retirement. At some point, we're probably going to see, eh, nope, everybody has to wait till they're 70. But um, so that is one risk, you know, that you risk instead of taking it at your full retirement age or even let's say you retire at 62 and you're going to wait till 70 to take Social Security. That's your risk. The system, you know, is, is a little bit broken. It was developed when the population was way, way different. I also want to point out that 85% of your Social Security is taxable in this situation. And it, it pretty quickly, the way the stupid formula, I've talked about this before, that the Social Security taxation laws were written on whiskey night in Congress because the law is stupid. It's very complicated and ridiculous, but it's pretty quickly, if you're living in the Bay Area and you can survive, 85% of your Social Security is going to be taxable. Now, the next part of this is, is very interesting. Um. He says, if I have 12000 a month income from five rental homes, which are all paid for, I will be living a comfortable and modest life. Would it be possible to survive until my old age and be happy? Or will taxes on the income be a huge burden? Okay. I don't know. I mean, that sounds like pretty good income, right? But it depends on what you're spending. You can't, unless you have liquid assets to pay for maintenance on those rental homes and renovations, because we all know if you've ever had a rental property, on the last show, I told you about the one I, I bought and I thought, oh, that, that water heater is probably going to last a couple of years. Two days after I bought it, I walk in the garage and there's water all over the place and I had to replace that 
that uh, water heater. And so you're going to have to set aside liquid assets for maintenance and renovations. Everybody's had an awful situation where a renter just screws up their entire property, steals the sinks, the faucets, toilets. You know, we all have those nightmares, right? That happens. So hopefully you have some liquid assets. It sounds like you're still working. So hopefully you have your 401k and you're funding a Roth IRA and things like that. You've got to have some liquid assets to pay for maintenance and renovations that come up on those rental homes. I would also make sure you have enough cash on the side. Let's assume there's no rental income for six months. I know a ton of people that own, for example, apartment buildings in 2021 and 2020 where people stopped paying rent because of COVID. Even if they were still working, people used the COVID situation to stop paying rent. And they couldn't get kicked out and they knew it. So let's assume we get next year, like this Omicron wave where I'm literally talked to about the probably 15th person um, that's had COVID vaccinated with the booster in the last couple of days. Everybody is getting it. It's if you haven't gotten it, you're going to get it. Right. And so let's assume next year we have an even worse wave and, and you have no rental income for six months. Can you survive? And then you've got inflation. That's the big boogeyman. So after the break, we're going to talk about inflation because it may be enough now, but the value of the dollar is cut in half about every 18 years because of inflation. So that means you know, your social security is not going to go much up with inflation. It has in the past. We've gotten those boosts, but the system has an issue. And that inflation on social security can't really de- be dependable. So that means it's all about rent increases over time. So you're talking about somebody that has great passive income from rental properties and, and then Social Security. And I'm not sure what other liquid assets are out there. Um, hopefully, there are liquid assets to deal with maintenance and renovations. Otherwise, you get stuck in a situation where, oh my gosh, I got to put a roof on two of my properties this year. That's a you know, 70, 80 grand and I got to take a loan to do it. And if this 12000 a month passive income that the guy has from his five rental homes plus Social Security is enough to live, that's great. But spending increases. We've talked about the smiley face spending in retirement, right? Where you spend a lot more in the first five to 10 years of retirement, then it kind of settles down and you spend a little less than when you were working and initially retired and then healthcare costs go up in the future. So that's a big one. You got to have a family plan here that says, okay, What's going to happen? Are you managing these properties yourself now? Eventually, you're not going to be able to or you're not going to want to. So you're going to give up somewhere between, what, 7 to 10% of the income to property manager. Um, and then if you or a spouse goes into a nursing home, how is that going to be funded? Are you going to be selling rental properties one by one? Are you going to be you know, taking reverse mortgage on your home? How are you going to fund those extra costs if you're Passive income doesn't support that. So you have to have a plan for health and healthcare in the future. Um, and you've, you've got to also think about how do you deal with inflation? Now, let's talk about rent inflation because, oh, a couple Tuesdays ago, when was that date? Um, but either way, a couple Tuesdays ago, the San Jose City Council voted unanimously to lift its freeze on rent increases at the end of the month. Uh, So last year, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the city began uh, prohibiting rent increases at apartment units subject to the city's rent control law. Earlier this year, the city limited the rent freeze to tenants who both live in rent-controlled housing and have declared pandemic-related financial hardship. So that's the thing about people that own rentals in like San Francisco and the rent control situation. 
you have to be able to have the freedom if you want good real estate. If it's yielding enough now, that's fine, but you have to be able to increase your rents two to 5% on an annual basis so that you can keep up with inflation as the investor. After June 30th, rental housing providers are going to regain their right to increase rents, but the San Jose's rent control law limits owners one rent increase each year that does not exceed 5%. And I know too many people, I was just talking to somebody that owns a property in Corte Madera, and when we did the math on the rental property, there's a small loan on it and everything else. And even if it was assumed to be paid off, the yield was like 3%. And yeah, they've gotten the growth and the value over the last few years because of the hot real estate market, but that's not going to continue the same way. I mean, I want, if I, if I look at a rental property and let's assume I have enough money to buy the thing with all cash. And once I pay my property taxes, my set aside for maintenance and all the costs involved, property manager, because I'm not going to be the one getting the call to fix the toilet at you know, 12 o'clock at night. Uh, I want you know, somewhere between 5 and 6%. Otherwise, I'd much rather own stocks. Because when you get through large increases in real estate values, eventually you get to a point where you get a a five to 10 year period where the values are going to kind of meet, be with inflation. So you've got to continually look at the real estate to see, is this a good deal or is it time to 1031 exchange and sell this property and go somewhere else for better income? Um, So (laughs) there's, there's a lot of options out there. You can talk to my, uh, my son who bought a property in Hobart, Oklahoma, where casinos being built and like 200 jobs are coming in. And I can't believe the value, the money that he, he the, the small amount of money that he paid for this house that he's completely renovating. Um, so a lot of other options out to other, in other parts of the country, but it's hard to do, especially as you age, to go do something like that. So look, when you, especially when you have a large amount of your net worth in real estate, you have to do very careful cash flow projections and use really good financial planning software like we use that takes each rental property and creates a schedule just like the schedule E on your tax return so that you can see here's my income, here's my expenses, here's my net, here's my taxes. Because real estate is very, very good tax-wise. doesn't matter what your income is, you can write off your property taxes against your rental income. And then the property itself, the value of the structure, you depreciate over 27 and a half years. So you take the value of the structure, you divide it by 27.5%. That's the amount that you can deduct from your positive rental income so you don't pay taxes on it, on that portion of it, if that makes sense. Um, But eventually, you lose that depreciation and your taxes can go up, right? So you got to keep that in mind. That's that's. I, I don't see a big tax increase on this person who was asking about, will taxes eat away at my income? And once the depreciation goes away, yeah, that's why a lot of investors in real estate, once the depreciation is gone or they can find a bigger, better deal that has the same or better income, but bigger depreciation, that's why they do a 1031 exchange where you can sell a rental property and within a certain period of time, move that money into a new rental property and get a better deal. And if you don't want to do direct management anywhere, there's Delaware Series Trust that you can go into where you're kind of like a passive investor. And there's, there's a lot of options out there. 
you have to do constant, constant analysis. And if you run your cash flow projections, say, here's my expenses, here's my income for my rental properties. And I can rent, let's say, I'll, I think I can increase rents by 2% a year. And you get 20 years down the road and you realize, wow, my, my expenses are going to exceed my positive cash flow. Then you're going to need to know which properties you're going to have to target to increase your liquidity in life. Which ones am I going to be selling first? Which ones have the, the worst growth potential or the growth the worst income, you know, net income. Uh, so it's constant analysis. But tax-wise, real estate's really, really attractive um, under current tax laws. And taxes don't really increase until depreciation ends. So, you know, I think that if you retire and the passive income is a little bit more than what you need now, that's a better situation so that you can sock away kind of some more safe money Sock away a slush fund. Realize that you know you're going to have to put in new carpets. You're going to have to, you know, renovate homes every ten to fifteen years to keep renters happy and to keep the income high. Or you ten thirty one exchange that property and buy something even bigger and better if if you can. Um, and then if you're you've been doing all this on your own, if you've been the essentially the property manager, you're not going to want to do that when you're in your eighties. You know, some can, some like to, and some enjoy it but most wouldn't want to. And so that might decrease your positive cash flow as well. So just do careful cash flow and tax projections to see where you're at and careful budgeting to see what's a safe amount to spend and make sure you have liquidity to pay for those maintenance costs. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait, I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirato Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiratopass.com. Let's go back to this because I've been doing radio with um, Rob Black for, since 1999. And if you would have listened to me back in 1999, you'd have still heard me preaching about three years worth of portfolio draws and cash. And then boom, we had that big three-year correction and you would have loved me. Um, and if you would have listened to me back then, um, until about 10 years ago, I was a huge fan of I-bonds. I was telling clients to get them. Uh, people on radio, I was telling them what a great deal they were. And then I've been pretty silent on them lately because, well, one, one reason is because you can hardly buy any anymore. You only buy 10000 a year. Back then, you could buy a lot more. And the fixed rate's really low. But they're in the news again, so I'm going to explain them because I got a couple of questions on I-bonds so far. And there was, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article. Um, yeah. Uh, and it said, the safe, high return trade hiding in plain sight. And Wall Street Journal said, one retirement consultant calls I-bonds the best kept secret in America. Right now, they're yielding over 3.5%, nearly risk-free. And, and this, is, this is the quote from the, the Wall Street Journal. They said, here's how you can make more than 170 times uh, raising your return 177 fold in a single trade, move your cash from a bank account where it's probably earning about 0.02% into an inflation protected U S savings bond, which will yield 3.54% annualized. Unlike daredevil stock or crypto trading, buying an I bond is almost risk-free and delivers significant tax advantages. Lot of crap in that headline. First of all, so uh, you, you really got to look at this. Now, I still like I-bonds and right now they're actually pretty interesting. So I'm going to explain what they are because you're going to start hearing more about them because we're hearing so much about inflation. And is this inflation transitory or is it here to stay? 
Uh, it's not just transitory, in my opinion. I think we're in a wave of wage increases, which will hit the bottom line of corporations, which means prices are going to go up, right? Um, every business that I know is having issues hiring people, and then people are jumping jobs to make ten, twenty thousand dollars more a year. Which okay, that's fine. All that's great. I'm trying to tell people that are certain certain industries, especially let's say. Uh, I don't know what, it doesn't really matter what industry it is, but we've gone in this freaking crazy bull market run since 2009, besides the blip last year, which lasted a very short period of time. And we haven't seen a recession, a true hardcore recession like 08 and 09 for a long time. And if people start job hopping because the job market's so good and they're just going job to job to make another 10, 20 and getting outbidded at the next place, as soon as we do have a recession, those are the first people that get cut. They're gone, out of here. Those are the first people filing for unemployment. So be careful about just jumping jobs just to make an extra 10, 20 grand more because you get put at the bottom of the ladder if you do. So keep that in mind. But what are I-bonds? Let me get back to the point here. I-bonds are government-issued bonds. Now, I'm not talking about tips. Like you can buy tips ETFs and things like, and tips mutual funds. I'm talking about I-bonds. You want to learn about them, you go to treasurydirect.gov. They're government-issued bonds. Now, most of you had grandparents or parents that bought double E-bonds or E-bonds, and these are different. Government, they're government-issued bonds, but they have two rates. They have a fixed rate that's locked in for the life of the bond when you buy it. That's 30 years. The fixed rate does not change. And then there's an inflation rate that changes every six months based on uh, you know, what the government says our inflation is, right? Now, currently, the fixed rate is 0% if you buy it, and it's been that way for a while. But the inflation rate, when you get it, changes every November and May. And in November of this last year, the inflation rate was huge because of the supply chain issues and, and demand not slowing. So the recent inflation rate was 3.57%. So I-bonds that were bought from November 1st through right now have a 3.56% semi-annual rate. So the article is actually wrong. When you look at the Treasury Direct site, if you would have bought a bond in November 1st and I-bond, your rate would have technically calculated out to 7.12% from the government. But let's talk about these rates again. I'm going to talk about the rates again in a moment. I-bonds earn interest for 30 years unless you cash them in first. So after 30 years... It's like I tell people that have E-bonds and double E-bonds start, you know, they, they, they don't pay interest after a certain period of time. So you got to start cashing them in. Now you can cash an I-bond in after the first year, but if you cash them in before five years, you lose the previous three months worth of interest. So there's a penalty if you cash them in before five years. So you keep that in mind. That can affect your overall yield. And so, you know, for example, if you buy an I-bond and then after 18 months you cash it in, you're going to get the first 15 months of interest and your money back. And that's it. When you do cash it in, you pay taxes at the federal level, but there's no state taxes. So if you live in Oregon or California, there's no state income taxes on it. And if you use the money for college and, and uh, things like that, uh, you can actually get some tax breaks in addition to that. Now, I want to point out the inflation rate will likely drop hard once we get through the supply chain issue. We've been running at a nice, you know, two, two and a half percent inflation rate for the last decade or so because of, you know, basically the global expansion of the economy making goods cheaper. 
And we are going to see higher inflation, but we're not going to see 7% a year. I doubt we even see you know, over three and a half percent steady for the next decade. Maybe we get two and a half, you know, closer to three for a, a few years and then it kind of calms down a little bit. The government can't handle a ton of inflation because that means higher interest rates and, and there's just too much government debt that they don't want to pay interest on. Um, so when you buy these things, if you look at treasurydirect.gov, you can see that for most of the last many periods of time, the inflation rate was sub- 1.2%. Now that's still better. I mean, that means that equates to 2% or more. So if you have cash that you know you're not going to need for, uh, you know, five years and you got 10,000 bucks that you don't, and you don't, and you want it to be completely safe, then fine, go buy an I-bond. It's way better than cash. The best cash you have is like Ally or Barkus or whatever, where you're getting like 025 to 0.5% on your money, on your cash. So it's fine. But you got to go through kind of a lot of hoops, especially if you have a, a living trust. Because you buy them at treasurydirect.gov. I hate paper bonds in any way, shape, or form. They're a nightmare when you die and I have to deal with it, you know, cashing those in for your, for your heirs. So you get the electronic version. But, I mean, again, you, you can't buy that much of it. So this article is hyping people up quite a bit. And you can click on it. Um, on the rates for I-bonds and clearly see that there's been periods of time where the inflation was, was much, much lower. Um, so again, if you want to read more about it, the Wall Street Journal article was um, by Jason Swag. It was, actually, the one I'm looking at is May 28th, 2011. So I think there was a more recent one than that. Um, but if you uh, click on treasurydirect.gov and then you can learn about uh, I-bonds, there's a, just a couple of clicks where um, you can, if you go to treasurydirect.gov on the first page of the bottom left, you can see what rates are on I-bonds. And um, you can see their example, what the current was until basically the next rate change is 7.12% yield. But it, it, again, it changes every six months. Once the fixed rate dropped to zero, that's when I stopped saying, hey, these are, these are awesome. And all, around the same time, they also made it for a while that you could only get five grand worth of I-bonds each year. And now that's 10. So it's made it a little bit easier. So you could get 10, your spouse could get 10. Um, but that's if you buy an individual and you have a living trust, you can get another 10. It's a lot of jump hoops to jump through for, for $10,000 worth of safe money. So that's my talk on I-bonds. They're much different than tips. Tips, like, I mean, if you want to look at an ETF, an exchange-traded fund that has other types of inflation-protected securities in it, that's tips. Treasury inflation-protected Bonds. TIPS ETF is TIP. It's not a recommendation. None of this is a recommendation. Consult a broker advisor before taking any action at all. And they can be very confusing because the way that they're structured, it looks like they have a really high dividend yield when you look them up online, but that's not technically the case. They're also trading at a premium because everybody was afraid of inflation. So where the aggregate bond index over the last year is down about a little over one, one and a half percent, TIPS are up 5% or so. Um, but trading at a bit of a premium. So there's TIPS ETF, there's actively managed inflation-protected bond mutual funds, 
there's there's a couple of different ways to kind of to look at this. Um, but yeah, it seems to be a lot of people talking about those types of bonds. And look, I, I just want to point out if you're if you're a little bit older, let's say you're you know 70s and beyond, and you have paper e bonds, people would be more like double e bonds or i bonds. Please, 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 please get them into the electronic version of treasurydirect.gov because there's a couple of things that are a total nightmare to settle in the state. It's direct held stock, either in certificate form or if you own it through like Bank of New York, Mellon, or computer share, those types of stocks that you hold through those firms, either paper form or like this, I don't know just awful form of direct held securities, get those transferred into a Schwab or a Fidelity account ASAP. It does, it's, it's so much easier to deal with personally and to settle it if you ever need to or to gift it to charity if you want to avoid paying taxes on it. It's a much better route to go. So take my advice on that. In the beginning of the show, I talked about a guy who is going to do pretty well by just living off Social Security and his, his net rental income. And I love that. That's passive income. And I'm kind of like most people that are probably, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, closer to 50 than I am 30, but sub 30, that the idea of retirement is, is kind of a, it's kind of a bad word. A lot of younger people think of retirement as those you know, stock photo pictures where you see old people sitting on the porch or walking on the beach with a sweater wrapped around their neck, which I've never understood. I don't, I don't get like, if you're, if you're going to have a sweater, why would you wrap it around your shoulders and tie it in a knot? I don't, <laughs> I don't think I could ever pull that off and I don't get it. Um, just leave the sweater in the car, but that's the stock photos. And, and we've even been guilty of using those. And, and it just seems like boredom because younger people are used to multitasking, building, building and, and uh, you know, different sources of income. And you know side gigs and things like that. It's a gig economy, and I like more diversification than that. I would prefer the majority of my passive income coming from stocks that increase their dividends. Talk more about that in a minute. And they increase dividends typically more than inflation. I like my rental income as long as the rental property is good in a good area, continuing to grow in value, and I have the ability to rent increase my rents as I mentioned, but also profits from businesses that. I either own all or a part of, even if I'm not directly involved anymore. There's a book and it's, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's called The E-Myth. I haven't talked about it for a long time and I need to kind of reread it and see if they've done an updated version. But it talks about, if you've done a really good job at creating a business, it means that you've created an entity that you could step away from and it could still run itself and kick off profit to you where you're paying all your people really good, fair, above average wage for their duties. There's still profit left over. And you as the owner, the person that bootstrapped the business, took all the risk, can kick back, and as a shareholder, continue to take profit out of the company. And you know that's, that's a really good feeling to create something that does that versus to create a job for yourself that, yeah, you're really well paid, but you also can't ever retire, can't ever go on vacation. So I would like those two pieces. I, you know, at this point, for I, I don't care about bonds. I got a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of sprinkling of bonds in my 401k just so that if the market corrects, I'll sell them and buy more stocks. But I love stocks. Now, um, rentals should be, like I said before, netting over 4% if they're paid off. 
plus have really good growth potential. Business ownership, that's more risk. So the equity that you have in that business should be kicking off 7% or more. And then stocks. Now, I fully believe stocks average 20% or plus when you look at 20 plus year periods. I'm sorry, 10% plus if you look at 20 year periods. But there's two pieces. There's the growth in the share price and then the dividends that stocks pay. And you've heard me talk about before dividend achievers. I, I like having a sprinkling of dividend achiever stocks in the portfolio. And these are companies that have a history. Number one, they pay a dividend. And they're typically larger cap companies, large, uh, you know, larger style companies. And they pay a dividend. They have a history of increasing their dividend on an average of 10% a year. So if the company's paying a dollar a year in a dividend, next year they'll likely pay a dollar ten a year as a dividend, right? 10% increase on average. Now, some companies will go two or three years and all of a sudden they'll have a 20% increase, right? Or more. And those are great because the dividends come even when the market is down. 08, 09, dividends came, right? There's only some financial companies that we had to sell, some banks that were cutting their dividends because they had to. Um, and, and you sell them. And then buy something else that is continuing to increase and pay dividends. Now, there's several different ETFs. None of these are a recommendation. Uh, it's a good sold to broker advisor before taking any action. But many of these I own personally or my clients own. Vanguard Dividend Achiever ETF, VIG, ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats, Wisdom Tree US Quality Dividend Growth Fund. So NOBL, DGRW, those are, those are three ETFs that use this approach. Now, there used to be a book that Rob and I talked about, Merchants Dividend Achievers Index, that NASDAQ bought the rights to that. And they have that, and then they have a, even have a international version, PID, through, I think it's ProShares. Now, VIG, the US version of it, 1.55% yield. DGRW, a little more value-oriented, still dividend achievers, 1.77% yield on that. The international version, which a lot of money managers are moving you know, some money, more money overseas because of valuations and higher dividends, PID is yielding 3.3% the last time I looked. Um, you always got to read the prospectus on these things and get updates on, on this stuff. But most of the dividends that you are going to get from like VIG and these US dividend achievers, they are taxed as capital gains, which is a very low rate. Most retirees pay between 0 and 15% on their dividends of US companies. Now, PID, you're gonna, that's you know, international companies, so that's going to be ordinary income. And then you've got your rental property, your rental property, you have your you know, net income after you pay all your expenses and then your depreciation reduces the taxation on that rental property. So that's pretty good tax-wise. And then your business income is taxed as passive income. So if you get to this point where you're just accumulating these types of assets, real estate, businesses, stocks that pay dividends, and you can get to a point where you're looking at your even though you're reinvesting your dividends, you can live off of, you can afford to pay for everything, including taxes and healthcare costs of your dividends, rental income, and business income. And you know your rental income is going to go up with inflation. Your dividends are going to be, majority of your companies are going to be increasing their dividends. And your businesses that you own portions of or business that you own portion of is increasing. That's called financial freedom. That's called true passive income. Where you know you'll likely never have to sell any of those assets unless there's a catastrophic healthcare event and that most of those assets will go on to your kids or church or charity. 
That's true financial freedom. That's an easiest way if you can accumulate that to, to retire. And that's kind of all I just don't see... I see myself traveling a lot more now and continue to work later because I enjoy the business quite a bit. If you want to find me, you can find me at chadburton.com. Links to the podcasts on any of the platforms are there at the bottom of the page. Just go to chadburton.com. You can request a meeting with one of our certified financial planners for taxes, retirement planning, estate planning, investing. It's all there. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show and uh, download the podcast. Have a great day. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.